A logic tree is a type of infographic that's meant to help you come to some kind of conclusion or to work your way through a complex set of options. Logic trees are also sometimes called issue trees as a consequence of how these charts are frequently used, which is for workers to, step by step, sort through options to solve issues based on a series of questions. For instance, you might have a chart that is meant to help you figure out what's wrong with your computer. The first question might be, is it plugged into a power source? You then check and answer that question, either answer it yes or no, and then both answers direct you to another separate question. Let's say the computer is in fact plugged in, so the next question might be, is the computer turned on? These questions then continue, with each answer leading you to another question, the intent being that you'll eventually solve the problem, and your computer will be back to operational shape. These charts are also utilized in complex fields in which you want to be absolutely certain you're not skipping steps or biasing the process with too much subjectivity. The Cooper-Harper rating scale helps test pilots and engineers rate the handling of new and experimental aircraft. And this scale is a logic tree that takes the rater through a series of questions, then tells them the rating based on the answers that they have provided to those questions. This process allows them to know how different pilots and engineers arrived at their 1 through 10 rating, which alleviates some of the issues with what could otherwise be a highly subjective rating system. A fault tree analysis, or FTA, is a specific type of logic tree that is used by engineers in the aerospace, nuclear power, chemical, pharmaceutical, and other industries in which there are hazards involved if a careless mistake is made or some small issue is overlooked. These charts are essentially debugging instructions, much like the aforementioned my computer isn't working logic tree, except these trees work engineers through, say, a crisis at a nuclear power plant, ensuring that they check every last detail, and check the most vital details first. They, in essence, allow workers to be more detail-oriented and orderly, even in the face of what could be a catastrophic situation. The logic tree system is also found in interactive fiction, those choose-your-own-adventure books that many of us read as kids, and those zork and adventure text games, the more nerdy of us, played back before computer graphics were a thing, are all based on the same structure. You're told that you're in a dark room, and you are likely to be eaten by a guru. The game mechanics have a series of logic tree branches that extend outward from its current state, so if you leave the room, it takes you down one path, resulting in a new chunk of text to read and a new set of branches to choose from. But there are other branches that take you off in other directions as well. In some of these games, you are told your branch options, and in others, you have to claw around typing in words that you think will trigger the game's software, taking you to one of the available next steps. And such logic trees are found all over the place these days, sometimes in very obvious places like memes that help us decide whether we need a coffee and in which all paths lead to the answer, yes, you need a coffee. And sometimes in complex software that seems to be almost alive, entertaining us, empowering us, and easing us through extremely complex processes throughout the day, 
as components of our apps, our social systems, and our personal habits. What I want to talk about in this episode is a technology that's based on the logic tree, and which has become all the more powerful of late as it has successfully piggybacked on other technologies and impacted everything from multi-billion dollar industries to international politics. Today, we will be talking about bots. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. If you go to letsknowthings.com and click on the contribute page, you'll find a list of different ways that you can help support the show. Whatever your method of contribution, thank you so much to everyone who has already contributed in some way, and a thanks in advance if you're considering doing so in the future. It means a lot. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible. If you enjoy podcasts, chances are you will also enjoy audiobooks. And in addition to that month of free Audible, you'll also get a free audiobook of your choice. And if you don't have one in mind already, stay tuned till the end of the episode for a book recommendation. And the other sponsor today is HostGator. If you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount that they give to listeners of Let's Know Things. HostGator.com LKT if you have any kind of website, blog, hosting-related project in the works. All right, let's get back to the show. So it's probably fair to say that Twitter, as social networks go, isn't the hippest thing in the world right now. It's less popular and has far lower growth numbers than all the other sexy social networks out there like Snapchat and Instagram. It's limited in awkward ways and unlimited in other also awkward ways. But I personally love it. It's my favorite social network as it tends to be very influential within certain fields, ranging from politics to biochemistry. And it's where a lot of the most prominent voices in many different fields congregate. And although there are still a lot of people on there who are only on Twitter to follow celebrities and yell at strangers from the other side of the political spectrum, many people tend to use it to gather information, or at least more than on other networks and to make new connections and to expose themselves to things that they might otherwise be unlikely to encounter. And as a result, I will often see conversations happening on Twitter, or information that's being spread there and talked about, before it hits the rest of the internet. Maybe it's as simple as gossip, maybe some famous person calling out another famous person, or sometimes it's news about a new finding in some political scandal, or an announcement about a scientific discovery. And I typically know that if I see it on Twitter, it'll usually be at least a handful of hours before it shows up on Facebook. And then maybe the next day, it'll be on the news. Twitter is where journalists and scientists and politicians and a lot of different types of professionals are having conversations that can sometimes end up being important or about important things. And I tell you all of this about Twitter because it's important context for today's article, which is entitled, 
How an Army of Twitter Bots Almost Created a Major Political Pundit. And this article was posted on Reveal News, and it's about a man named Jim Vidmar, whose real name is actually Jim Denlinger, a man who you can hire to wrangle bots to amplify your tweets on Twitter. Now, Jim uses the name Vidmar when discussing bots because hiring and controlling bot accounts in this way is against the terms of service of Twitter and of every other social media platform on which he operates. And for a while, he tried to build himself into a political celebrity on the network using bots, but he was eventually booted when he was found out, when it was found out that he was using these things to inflate his numbers. But today he hires that bot wrangling skill to others. And this article focuses on one such effort that garnered a 60 minutes correspondent over 4,000 retweets within the span of a few minutes. And the tweet that was retweeted was so bland. It said, quote, what happens when 60 Minutes investigates fake news? Hashtag March Madness. End quote. But it gained hundreds of additional retweets on top of the ones that were paid for because there is a tendency to amplify things that are already being amplified. This is the consequence of what's often called the Matthew effect, which essentially says that famous people get more famous because they're famous, rich people become richer because they're rich, and in this case, Popular tweets become more popular because they are popular. This effect is predicated on the notion that increased exposure for being famous will, in turn, make a person more famous because they're getting that increased exposure. The same is true of the wealthy. Simply being wealthy, having money in an interest-generating account, or investing in other interest-generating activities, will make you more wealthy than a less wealthy person doing the same things. On Twitter, a tweet getting a whole lot of attention will be boosted by the platform's algorithms and then seen by more people and as a result gain more attention, which in turn boosts it further and gets it more attention and so on. These types of beneficial cycle are abused on all social networks, not just on Twitter. There was an article published on Petapixel recently entitled, I spent two years botting on Instagram. Here's what I learned in which the author, a photographer who hates bots, undertook an experiment to figure out how they work and why so many people use them. He did this on Instagram using a popular bot service called Instagress, which essentially automates activity on the site, frantically liking and favoriting and commenting on relevant users' work in the hopes that some of these people will like back, will favorite back, and perhaps even follow back. He documents this process and provides a whole lot of numbers, which seem to indicate that one, bots do seem to work in that they drive a whole lot of numbers back to your posts and profiles, and two, that it is incredibly sad that this is so common, because although these bots do amplify some of the metrics associated with activity and make it look like more activity is taking place, they actually kill legitimate activity, and eventually kill the culture and the purpose of the networks that they come to take over. He also posits that these platforms that are bot-infested have very little incentive to actually prevent them, even though they're banned, technically, in the terms of service. And they have little reason to stop it from actually happening, despite that, because the accounts that are botting are dramatically increasing 
the activity numbers that they can show to investors and stockholders. So if they clamped down on these people who are botting, it would make the service seem very dead in comparison to how it was before. And this assertion proved to be true on a smaller level for the author. He found that as soon as he stopped doing the bot thing on the experimental account which he made for that purpose, all the interactions died and his likes diminished substantially. And the true shape of what was underneath that bubble of bots was exposed to the light. And it wasn't pretty or popular. It was all fluff supported by other fluff. Now the trick of following a whole lot of people and frantically clicking and liking and then eventually unfollowing them and hoping that they stick around with you, this was already a popular, if questionable, tactic, even before it was feasible to automate it. And in a way, just like with the Instagram bots, it works with all the negatives that go with it. Putting in that type of effort can get you numbers, but they will be numbers that are inflated and ultimately quite empty of substance. I am not a big fan of these sorts of bots. I get why people use them and the desire to have those type of metrics that we associate with success or authority, but it does kind of toxify any community that it enters, this predisposition for bot wrangling. It's like the sock puppet accounts on Amazon that leave fake reviews. They not only mess up the system for those of us who play by the rules and people looking to actually get legitimate reviews, but it also sometimes results in consequences that can be worse than the bot infestation itself, like the deletion of legit reviews on Amazon, or new hardcore restrictions applied to social networks that are trying to cut down on their bot infestation. But real quick, before we go any further into this conversation, what is a bot anyway? Bot in this context is a term much like app that denotes something that technically already existed, but that's being used in a new way today, or at least seems to be used most prevalently in a very specific space and therefore has a new term to denote it. An app is just a piece of software that's usually smaller and more concise and focused than other software. And the term eventually came to be associated almost exclusively with software for phones and tablets and other devices as opposed to software that we find on computers. A bot is similar to an app in that it's just code, just software that's been renamed, but the term bot usually refers to a software process that is highly repetitive and relatively simple. So there are chatbots, and there are Instagram hacking bots, and there are bots that form some of the infrastructure of the web. Google uses bots to crawl the web, which is how it fills up its search engine. That's how it knows what's where and which keywords to apply to which websites. It's estimated that half of all web traffic is actually bot traffic. And some of these bots are crawling around for Google and other search engines. And some are being used for things like web scraping or web harvesting, which essentially means perusing all the websites they can find for information and then compiling that information for later use. This is how some spammers get your email address. They build a bot that scrapes the web for email addresses, and then those addresses are fed into a database, and spam messages are later blasted out to all of the addresses on that database. And as complex as that can sound, these are actually very structurally simple tasks, and very repetitive, and so you can build a piece of software that is relatively simple, 
that can do great big epic things because of its ability to repeat them endlessly. But again, the line here is blurred, and the important thing to know is that bots can be apps, and websites can run bots, and it's all just kind of a vernacular game. It's all just a muddled mess, and the words aren't super important, but in general, a bot is a simple piece of software that repeats simple things over and over again. Now, because bots are such structurally simple creatures, that also means that they're fairly easy to create. And especially with the technology and the programming languages and the coding libraries available today, not to mention the full-blown bot-building platforms, which I'll get into in a few minutes, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that there are bad guys, way badder than those who wish to artificially inflate their social media numbers with bots, who are making use of these tools in clever and malicious ways. For example, there's evidence that Russia is making use of this technology to signal boost alt-right messages, like a recent hashtag fire Kushner message that emerged shortly after Steve Bannon was booted from President Trump's National Security Council, which in turn sparked a wave of stories about how the far-right anti-globalist wing, the president's advisors, were being defeated by the globalist wing, which is generally considered to be led, or at least represented by, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Hence, hashtag fire Kushner. And what it means for Russia to be using bots to amplify such a message is that they are able to create a huge number of Twitter accounts that seem like real people in many cases, but which then promote the same hashtag or the same series of hashtags in a relatively short period of time. And that then signal boosts that hashtag, pushing it up toward the top of the trending hashtags that are prominently displayed on the website. And in turn, it draws more attention to a particular cause or a particular rallying cry. This is far from the only time a popular hashtag or other social media wildfire has been traced back to Russia. Testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee in late March, former FBI agent Clint Watts laid out how Russia used bots to spread fake news to primarily Midwestern voters in swing states in the United States, leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Their methods were fairly sophisticated, and they built accounts over time to build up those accounts posting history, and they gave them avatars and bios that were made to look like they were people from the same areas and of the same belief system of the people that they were targeting. And they even used keywords and shared articles that represented the average shared beliefs in those target areas. Now, the bots that they used to disseminate information via these fake Twitter accounts were relatively simple, but the strategy behind it was a fairly complex thing. And as far as we're able to tell, it was actually fairly successful in swaying public opinion in a lot of these areas, though the degree of that sway is very much up in the air, and perhaps even unmeasurable using any metric that we might currently have on hand today. Another recent piece of digital forensics traced the Syria hoax hashtag back to its source, and found that the bot-amplified hashtag originated with an Assad-linked group, that is the head of Syria, Assad, indicating that Russia isn't the only government that's found value in this method of conspiracy theory spreading and actual news muddling tactic. What we're seeing then, and what we've quite likely been seeing but not realizing it, and for many groups, not just those that are currently being reported on, 
is an increased use of this tactic as part of a larger strategy to muddle the reporting of facts, to legitimize counterfactual information by bolstering its prevalence on social media, and then to consequently get those false messages reported on by reputable news outlets by making those false messages popular. This ensures that there is doubt cast about what really happened in any given situation, and the perception in the eyes of the general public then becomes that there are a lot of people who disagree with the quote-unquote mainstream media interpretation of events, which in turn leads to more people doubting anything that they're told, even by reputable sources of news and information. Now, I've spoken a lot about different aspects of the current journalism legitimacy crisis in past episodes, but bots are absolutely playing a role in it and have become the weapon of choice for muddying the waters on many different issues, in addition to very specific and very obvious targeted moves that have clearly intentional motives behind them, beyond the broad spreading of doubt about journalism. So that's some of the bad news associated with bots. They are killing our social networks, they're helping people obsess about the wrong things, they're obfuscating real news in a deluge of faux news and conspiracy theories, and they're allowing an often malicious minority to seem bigger than they are, which then normalizes their maliciousness. But all that said, there are many upsides and potential upsides to bots. There are many good bots in addition to all the bad bots out there in the world. In an episode of the podcast last year, I went pretty in-depth into what's happening in the hands-free user interface space, meaning the voice-activated and controlled user interfaces that are popping up everywhere and being invested in by everyone. Siri and Cortana and Google Home and Amazon's Alexa, they're all user interfaces that are audio-based, which makes use of speech recognition software and powerful and compact devices and high-speed mobile internet in a novel way, in which, although it's still a growing scene, has become very big very quickly, and we have many reasons to assume that this space will only grow bigger and iterate faster in the coming months and years. The investments being made seem to point toward this being a big deal, even if it's still kind of a burgeoning novelty today. These audio interfaces are cousins of the bots that we see everywhere else, like on Twitter, and are themselves just specialized bots that we interact with audibly. And there's plenty of reason to assume that they will be a component of the bot-related infrastructure that is currently being built by some of the biggest companies in the world right now. Let's talk a bit about that infrastructure. Facebook has built a developer platform, which they launched in beta back in April of 2016, which allows any developer to use Facebook tools to create a bot within the Facebook Messenger ecosystem. Since that launch, tens of thousands of bots have been built for Facebook Messenger. The latest confirmed number I could find was 34,000 as of September 2016. And attitudes toward using the bots, whether or not people know that's what they're doing, have slowly come to favor the little interactive bits of code. One often cited case study is that of 1-800-Flowers, a fairly popular flower ordering and delivery company, which apparently acquired 70% of their new customers through their branded Facebook bot in the second half of 2016. And that's interesting because many of these bots, including the one built by 1-800-Flowers, are actually quite linear and even simpler than most other simple bots. 
It's more about bringing the sales experience of a website or an app to your messenger window than doing anything truly sophisticated. So instead of browsing a typical user interface like a website with a gallery of flowers, you might type into your messenger, I want to send some roses. And you would receive a message back with a couple of different options with images of the flowers, which you can then click on to choose. And then you type the address where you'd like them to go, and then done. Your purchase is complete. The innovation here then is not necessarily about remarkable new ways of communicating or even novel new systems of marketing and economics. It's often more about changing the location of these interactions and attempting to make them more intuitive and friction free, to remove some of the barriers between you and the thing that you want, whether that is flowers or information or whatever else. CNN has a popular bot on Facebook, as do many other news agencies, and they use them to share news item snippets throughout the day with an option to respond to learn more. There are sports bots that will keep you up to date as to who won which match, and bots that will allow you to play a sort of tinderish music liking game where you say which albums you like and they follow up with recommendations of which vinyl albums you might want to purchase. Again, followed by the option to quickly click through and get that thing you said you liked immediately with just a step or two between you and that purchase. Other bots are less linear and less focused on the sale and more about providing a branded experience. Disney, for example, has a Miss Piggy bot and Universal has a Back to the Future bot, both of which allow you to chat with the characters from the Muppets and from the Back to the Future series, respectively. And these character bots then respond in clever and on-brand ways. This has the added bonus of allowing them to drop hints about upcoming events and products or film releases, of course, but the focus is usually on the entertainment value of these interactions. Now, these bots are commensurately more complex than a simple sales bot, requiring a large number of branches stemming off from each point in the logic tree as the bots watch for keywords to assess what you're saying and then attempt to say something relevant and on-brand back, and all while trying to keep the pace natural and the tone appropriate. Facebook's bot platform, though, is not unique. Microsoft's bot framework works in a similar way and has similar aims, though the bots you build there can be more easily exported to places like Skype and Slack and Kick and even Facebook Messenger. So their efforts are less about building within a walled garden for a specific platform like Facebook and more about being the owners of the code and tools used to build these bots being a resource for those tools, wherever they might end up. Google also has a bot framework, which they call Actions on Google, which allows developers to build bots similar to those supported by Facebook and Microsoft. But it's also similar in some ways to the Alexa skills ecosystem, which has its own set of developer tools and which help you build audio bots for Amazon's Alexa ecosystem which is most famously housed within the Echo product that they sell. Google's system in a way straddles both of those concepts, allowing for visual bots for phones and computers and browsers, and audio bots for the same, but also on their Google Home platform, which is kind of like the Amazon Echo. And if this seems at all scattered 
and confusing to you, all of these different approaches and these different specialties, you are not alone in that. This space, at least as of spring 2017, is very cluttered and very ill-defined in a lot of cases as well. Everyone is approaching bots from a slightly different angle and with slightly different goals in mind and with a slightly different spin on how they think the field should progress. And even how the field is defined is different depending on who you talk to and whose platform you end up on. Bots are often considered to be the automatic response programs contained in environments like Facebook Messenger and text messages and on websites. But the audio versions are essentially the same thing, just in audio. And if you really want to get deep into the term and blur the borders of it a little bit, consider that customer service staff, like real human beings who use logic trees when they work, whether it's at a nuclear power plant or if they're customer service, dealing with customers based on these logic tree charts, they operate the exact same way as bots, just not quite as efficiently. And so you could consider these processes that they work through to be bot processes and lump them into some of the same categories. So bots are essentially replacements for those people who follow those charts. They just do all the work without taking breaks or requiring a paycheck or ever deviating from the script, for better or for worse. But something that differentiates this new breed of bots and the new approach to bots from all these different companies from the bots of old and the human bots that I just mentioned, is that today the companies that are involved with them are attempting to, in essence, replace all of your apps and all of your websites and all of your everything, more or less, with just one app full of bots. If you can order clothing and call an Uber and pay for your food and chat with your friends, and post updates to your social media profiles, all from one app, because that app contains numerous bots. It has an Instagram bot and an Uber bot. Do you ever again need to open all those other apps? Could one of these services become the one app to rule them all by virtue of being capable of summoning all the features from all those other apps through the use of its bots? And I ask because that seems to be the idea here. It seems to me that all these different companies with their platforms and their bot-specific products are really trying hard to take over this space and make all of these other apps irrelevant by essentially making them landowners on real estate that they control. And that, I think, is why there's a bit of a land rush in this space by Facebook and Google and Amazon and Microsoft to try to be the first to make a really well-developed, rich, popular developer platform for bots. Because if you can get people developing for your platform and adding value to it in that way, while also making them more dependent on you and your platform, then you are set. If 1-800-Flowers becomes reliant on Facebook to get new customers, and a large portion of their orders comes from that social network because of their bot on the Facebook Messenger app, then Facebook has a lot of leverage over them and everyone else who is in that same position. And this isn't to imply that Facebook is building this and trying to gain that leverage with any kind of malice or bad intentions, but rather to show that it makes a whole lot of business sense 
to crowd people in and make their platform as useful and usable and feature rich as possible. And whomever does that first and best and gets users habitually using their apps with these bots the soonest will take home a huge percentage of all future search and e-commerce profits, which is, of course, a massive amount of money. And they will also be far more defensively positioned against their competitors, because if they can get people habitually using this one app for all these different things, those habits are hard to break. Now, all that said, usability, like how these bots actually operate, how they function, it has been a bit of an issue since they started talking about it a couple of years ago. Over the years, and just recently as well, I have tried these bots, and the only ones that I've found to be at all compelling, frankly, are the ones that replicate those old text-based video games. There's a game called Lifeline, for instance, that's essentially a conversation between you and the game's protagonist in a chat window. And the game is you trying to guide them to safety after their spaceship crashes on an unknown moon. Now, this is an old-school game mechanic, but it was done in a new way, and it was interesting and very well produced. And this game and others like it are available on the web, on Android, on iOS, and also within chat programs like Facebook Messenger, which is a very good thing, I would argue, for the interactive fiction community. Now, less well-produced, and often less handy, in my opinion, are a lot of these other bots. Now, is it sometimes useful to have, I don't know, a weather bot in your chat program? If you want to look up the weather while you also happen to be chatting to someone on Facebook Messenger? Sure, I guess. But most of us, I think, already have other weather-checking habits based around other apps or websites or whatever. And the experience with these chat bots is not sufficiently better, at least in my experience, to break those habits and pull me away from my existing weather app. Will buying something in a text message sometimes be easier than going to the website? Again, if you happen to be in a deep conversation on Facebook or Messenger and you want to order some flowers, does that make more sense than going to the 1-800-Flowers website or one of their competitors? In some cases, probably, but for the majority of people, the majority of the time, I'm not sure that we are there yet. This, I recognize, is a super biased appraisal of the situation, and I'm aware that one, I am a far from average consumer, not the demographic that they are targeting with this type of thing, and two, I'm not big on texting and messaging throughout the day, so definitely far out of the demo that they're hoping will be early adopters on this type of bot ecosystem. But I do think that some people will share my ho-hummedness about many of these bots. But that said, I also know that some people have already switched over to using them whenever possible instead of their respective apps. And that's both anecdotal and that is what the early stats about these bots seem to suggest, that they are having a whole lot of repeat customers, which means that they're enjoying something about it. And it's also worth noting that whatever this ecosystem looks like today, it could be very, very different in radical ways and in very mundane, almost unnoticeable, but also very important ways in a very short period of time. As I record this, we are a week or two away from a Facebook developer conference, 
at which it is rumored that there's going to be news about new types of bots, including group bots, which would allow, for instance, a group of friends to watch a baseball game together in a Facebook group chat while the bot helpfully provides information and updates based on the conversation that these friends are having or on what's happening in the game itself. Now, group bots of this kind already exist in some forms on other platforms, like the popular team collaboration tool, Slack, but they do not have Facebook's reach. There are nearly 2 billion people active on Facebook every month, and nearly 1 billion are using Facebook Messenger regularly. Consequently, anything that happens on Facebook is far more likely to become common and to become habitual faster, simply because of their reach and because of the demographic span that they enjoy. They have young folks, they have old folks, and they have everyone in between on Facebook. In comparison, Slack has about 5 million regular users that occupy a very narrow social demographic, which is impressive, but it's not 2 billion people. It is very difficult to compete with Facebook in terms of making something common. One more use for bot technology, and probably my favorite example of this technology as it's used today, has been its application in providing niche services, cheaply or free, and these services not even necessarily related to sales or brands. One example of what I mean by this is the do not pay robot lawyer, which automates the process of appealing parking tickets in several cities around the world including London, New York, and Seattle. This bot asks a series of questions, like where the ticket was issued and a description of the scenario in which the ticket was given. The bot then processes this info and whips up a 500-ish word letter to send to the city and instructions on how to proceed from there. The Do Not Pay Bots creator, Joshua Browder, was upset about the parking ticketing system which in essence seemed to incentivize people not to appeal because the system was so confusing and cumbersome. He was able to cobble together this simple bot that would essentially just handhold people through these appeal steps, then dynamically create the documents that they need to finish it, which then cuts through all the legalese and confusion and obfuscation that is found in the appeals process. Since the Do Not Pay Bots launch in 2015, it's estimated that this robot lawyer bot has saved 175,000 people about $5 million in unfairly or improperly issued parking tickets. Browder is also working on building a universal robot lawyer that can be used in more or all law-related situations. But in the meantime, he's created a new bot that works on the Facebook Messenger platform, which, using a similar conversational tone and system as the parking ticket bot, helps refugees fill out immigration applications for the US and Canada, or helps them apply for asylum support in the UK. It strikes me that there are many, many services and systems that could be simplified in this way and made available on platforms that we're all using already. Many of us already use tax preparation services, for instance, which operate similarly to chatbots, and it seems feasible that we could someday handle all of our interactions with the government, be they tax-related or parking ticket-related, via such bots. It would be a lot more personable 
in many ways than the cold, confusing paperwork, not to mention a whole lot more clear, probably, and would allow for more interaction and individual assistance without necessitating that the government hire a million new customer support workers. And this is something, I should say, that is already happening to a limited degree. Many of the customer support messages we receive via chat and email on certain websites when we ask for help are actually sent by bots, and that conversation is only handed off to a real person when something very specific or confusing is brought up by the user. So that in mind, I wonder how much of our online service industry could be simplified in this way. And would that future, would a bot-heavy future, be amazing or frustrating? Would it clear up a lot of the obfuscation, or would it clutter things just in different ways? Would it improve our social relationships by freeing up time that we'd otherwise spend waiting through paperwork? Or would it kill our desire to talk to other humans who are not as straightforward and patient as these friendly bits of code? Part of what's happening in the bot space right now is the consequence of a bunch of technologies hitting all at once. Just like with artificial intelligence, the emergence of more powerful hardware, more refined software, better connection speeds, and more personalized devices in more pockets is encouraging us to interact with technology in different ways which in turn iterates relevant technologies at breakneck speeds. But we've also reached a moment in corporate history in which the land grab potential is high. And like the audio UI space, whomever captures the dominant position in the bot space may have a substantial advantage over their competitors. Building the platform makes you the medium across which everything else takes place. The potential for that kind of near-future positioning is very worth investing in for these types of companies. I'm particularly interested to see in the near future whether these bots remain fractured and dispersed and individually utilized at different sources, or if they do primarily end up under the jurisdiction of just one group, like a Facebook Messenger or some type of Google service. There would be some serious disadvantages to them all ending up under one header in a single app the same as when any new technology or platform is dominated by just one group. Very often then, they have less incentive to evolve and iterate it, beyond going through just enough motions to keep people engaged. And the lack of outside competitive forces means that they have an immense amount of leverage over all the companies who want to work with them, and all the people who use them as a connective tissue to reach those other companies and services and who may only stick around because there's no viable alternative. There are also, though, some major advantages to that potential amalgamation, to having everything under just one header. To understand the absolute potential of an omnibot, let's call it, an app that has all the bots together in one place, we'd have to see at least one well-defined standard that captures the lion's share of the bot industry. And, as I mentioned, that could be a bad thing in terms of the monopolistic potential that that company would then have, but it could also be pretty epic in terms of how valuable such a service would become, especially when combined with the utility of our personal devices and with things like audio user interfaces. That could lead us to a place where we have a true digital personal assistant. And science fiction is already brimming 
with example of the type of friendly personal bot that I have in mind here. In these stories, they're often called agents, and they operate kind of like digital versions of a witch's familiar. And it's easy to imagine, especially seeing what's happening now, as these bots are blended with social networks and our communication interfaces, that we might someday find ourselves with a single personal digital assistant that serves as a kind of omni-tool and access point to all the information and resources that we have at our fingertips. They could help us differentiate real from fake news, could help us connect to new people that we might get along with or maybe want to date. They could help us with our taxes and help us find deals on a new car or maybe help us figure out what's wrong with our current car that we're thinking of replacing. And all we'd have to do to get this help is ask. This is not a wild extrapolation or a sci-fi concept anymore. It's what's already happening. And I wouldn't be surprised to see companies, or more likely, especially at first, sub-companies within existing behemoths like Facebook, Google, or Amazon, or Apple, or Microsoft, selling their products and actually marketing them based on the idea that these phones or these other technologies will be imbued with a personalized assistant of this kind. And many of them are already trying to do this with their relatively simplistic series and Cortanas. But the next step is to turn these assistants into something that's very individualized and customized and something that grows with you, almost like a digital pet, like a Tamagotchi, that you can then evolve over time as you evolve, as you change. And it's something that has as near-perfect knowledge of you as you can possibly have in a digital entity. To the point where the more they know and the more experience they have with you and with your data, the more useful they become. There are absolutely risks to this type of thing, as there are with anything that's data-related and privacy-related. There'd be a lot of opportunity for abuse of this type of digital entity. But at the same time, they could be an immensely useful evolution of current interfaces one interface to rule them all that is predicated on one app to rule them all, which is predicated on all the bots that it has sucked up and made part of itself. It could be that they are able to help us in ways that we cannot even imagine yet. This Voltroning of bot technologies will very likely change society in many different ways and influence how we organize, how we communicate, how we work, even how we socialize. And thinking about that and watching for it as it emerges and all the pieces that lead up to it will be valuable. It's worth noticing all the little changes in our lives as these logic tree operators work their way into our day, because those subtle shifts may help us understand what tomorrow could look like and how we might best prepare for it today. Let's Know Things is brought to you by you, the listener. If you're enjoying what you hear, consider stopping by letsknowthings.com and clicking on the Contribute tab, where you'll find an array of different ways that you can help support the show. Leaving that review on iTunes, contributing directly through PayPal or Venmo, taking action on any of the options listed there is very much appreciated. A huge thanks to everyone who has contributed in some way already. You can also support the show by checking out my other work. You can see a full list of the books that I've written at colin.io, and I have a new book that, depending on when you listen to this, is either available for pre-sale or is on sale. 
That book is entitled Becoming Who We Need to Be. Chances are, if you enjoy the show, you will also enjoy this book in its tone and format and content. You can pick that up wherever books are sold. If you enjoy it, do leave a review. Those things help substantially. Helps us independent authors counter the effects of all those sock-puppeting Amazon bots. You can also help support the show by checking out our sponsors. First sponsor today is HostGator, the hosting company that I use for all of my online properties. Go to HostGator.com LKT. Not only will you be helping the show, but you will also receive a substantial discount on all of their hosting offerings. HostGator.com LKT. And the other sponsor today is Audible. I absolutely love audiobooks. If you enjoy podcasts, chances are you will also enjoy audiobooks. They are just great big long podcasts, essentially. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial so you can see if you do, in fact, enjoy audiobooks. And you'll also receive an audiobook of your choice. And the world is full of amazing books to read, and it's very, very difficult to know which one to choose. So might I suggest picking up a copy of The Psychopath Test? By John Ronson. And John Ronson is the author of some of my favorite nonfiction books. He wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats and recently So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And he has a really, really compelling narrative style with his nonfiction work. He and, and Mary Roach, I think, are my two favorite narrative style nonfiction writers because they, they write very informative, interesting work. That is bizarre in a very unique way, but also very compelling and entertaining as well as they're explaining these factual bits of information. And in this book, John Ronson talks about psychopathy and how we treat it societally and what we think about it and interviews a bunch of people who are purported psychopaths and looks into the way the medical industry and hospitals and psych wards and the like treat supposed psychopaths. So there's a whole lot in this book. It's very, very interesting and definitely worth your time, not to mention quite entertaining. That is The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. You can pick that up wherever you get books at your local library, local indie bookstore, grab it on Amazon, your Kindle, your Kobo, or if you care to, you can go to audibletrial.com LKT and use your free credit to snag the audiobook version of this for free. You can view the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. While there, you can also sign up for the Let's Know Things newsletter, which goes out every Monday and is really more just a collection of links to interesting things than a newsletter. But I call it newsletter anyway because you're not the boss of me. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet from Twitter to Instagram. No bots involved. At Colin is my name. Thank you very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.